Hey Rewatchers, Keith here, and we've got a very special episode for you this week. Did you think the Rewatchers didn't have any more Highlander Worldwide content left? You've never been more wrong, and you should be embarrassed, frankly. That's right, this week we are reaching back into the vaults from the Highlander Worldwide convention, which the Rewatchers attended back in the fall. We were able to sit down at the convention with Highlander writer Maury Ravinsky, whose writing credits included Not To Be, The Fighter, Brother in Arms, The Blitz, among others, and his writing life partner, Alicia Willey, to talk about blasting out that first draft, taking a Talmud class with David Abramowitz, and dealing with Canadian censorship. Also, this week's episode is a video podcast, so if you're interested in seeing the video, head on over to our Facebook page and click on the videos link, and you'll be able to find this interview right there. But of course, you'll get a lot of enjoyment out of hearing just the audio as well. So thanks for joining us for this podcast, and we'll be back next week with one of our regular Season 4 recap episodes. Enjoy the show! Hey, we're here at day three or two of the Highlander Worldwide 10th anniversary. Day three, that's right. And uh, <laughs> we have two very special guests with us today at the convention. Uh, would you mind introducing yourselves? Hi, I'm Maury Ravinsky, and uh, I was a writer on Highlander. And I'm Alicia Ravinsky. Actually, my, my professional name is Alicia Willie, but that's another story. Um, and I'm also a writer. Um, we write together on many projects and work together at any rate, no matter who the apparent writer is. And um, I've been an executive producer on a number of different things um, that we've shot, especially up in Canada. <laughs> thank you both so much for joining us today. And uh, thank you for coming to the convention. Uh, is, is this your first Highlander Worldwide convention? Uh, absolutely. It's the first time. I had no idea what to expect or what to imagine. And it's, it's amazing. It's just an extraordinary event. Uh, it's really like watching a family come together, and, and people have been uh, very welcoming and warm. It's, just, it's wonderful. And to see the Highlander people getting to absorb the love from the fans is just great. Because you don't, as a writer, you get very little feedback. You get, oh, oh you wrote that? What's your name? Oh, I never heard of you. That's, that's sort of... So, but inside the industry, you get some recognition. And it's nice when you come... Out here, and people are saying, like, oh, I saw that episode, or I remember a line, or something like that. Have you been getting a lot of feedback from episodes you've written where that's, like, somebody's favorite episode? I used to get a lot of that, not so much these days. I got one that really shocked me. It was a fan fiction piece um, that came to us. It was a 60-page, single-spaced story that was based on one of my Highlander scripts, and woman who wrote it said at the top, this is based on... Brothers sorry, in Arms? Right? Which one? Brothers in Arms, was it? Oh, maybe. Sorry. Did I write Brothers not... in Arms? Yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, maybe. Anyway, um, one of the things I'd love to talk about is short stories. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, so I published my first book of short stories, self-published, a year or two ago. Great reviews. Made a fortune, almost $100. Oh, and what's that book called? It's, it's called Meeting God or Something Like It. And the Something Like It part that's important. Um, and it's got, got great reviews and great reception. So I'm, I'm putting out another book this fall called I Have a Card. The Heart and Other Strangers. Thank you. The Heart and Other Strangers. <laughs> and it's ten short stories. Some of them really dark, some of them really wonderful. But I love them. I love writing short stories. Um, it seems to be. I've written novels and plays and movies, and 
But there's something magical about writing short stories, about, about getting something down to where, where it's precise and clean. And yet not magical enough to keep you from writing novels. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> well. What's the short story process? Like, does, are, did these start with like a, a real-life inspiration, or does it start with an idea that you want to flesh out? Both of those things are, are applicable. I have one story in this new collection called um, Doc and the Bungalow Queen. And it's a wonderful love story. And it's a really great story. And that story started because you're walking down the street a couple of blocks from our house in Santa Monica, and there on the sidewalk it said Doc and the Bungalow Queen. And I thought, wow, it's mysterious and wonderful. So I wrote a story just based on that. I have no idea who Doc and the Bungalow Queen are or anything like that, but the story is a wonderful story. So that started from something real. I tend to be an idea person, so often I'll start with a notion of what it is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to talk about and get myself onto the playing field. And then uh, I really, my writing process tends to be uh, blast out a first draft as quickly as I possibly can and then go back and go to work. That the real work of writing is, is rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Um, I teach a class down at, uh, up at Loyola Marymount University. Uh, and the first thing I tell them is, if you bring me a first draft, I'm going to throw you out of the class. <laughs> and, um, and it's true. You know, the first draft is where you gather all the energy. And then the second and third and fourth and fifth draft is where you sculpt it into something. For me. Hmm? You? Huh? Is that the same for you? I've never asked you. I'm You've never sculptor. asked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely a sculptor. I lean towards the editing end of things anyway. Maury's a very fast writer. I mean, he really does get that blast out there and, and just lets himself entirely go. And then the steps afterwards are ones where you start to pull pieces in and take things out so that it hones it down. And, and, I, and, I, and I do a lot of that work with him on the, that part. Yeah, she does a lot of that. And the problem with second drafts and this is that all the stuff that gave you energy in the first draft gets modified in the second draft, gets tamped down, and you try to make it a little more real and a little more, and you lose all that fire and energy that you have when you first come up with the idea. So third and fourth drafts are necessary because you're trying to recapture the energy that you lost cleaning it up in the first place. She's a great editor. It's great to have her in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask him that every day, whether or not I'm a great editor, because there are days when we go at it over something, some aspect of it. I was just going to ask, oh, sorry, part, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, like, how does that, the, the, the working together and, of course, being a couple, does that ever interfere? So, um, <laughs> I never wrote with anyone in my life. I just, that's not what you do. Writing is you sit by yourself and you swear and curse and feel terrible, all that stuff. And she came to me one day and said, I want to write something with you. And I said, you know, I said, sure, go out and sell a story. I'll write it with you. So she went out and sold the story. <laughs> and we wrote it together. We were having as much fun writing as we were having being together. So we just kept doing it. It's been yeah. terrific. Yeah, it's it's been terrific. It's really sort of amazing. It is. It's no, we like, we like we working together, and we're respectful of each other. I mean, it's not like, I, you know, I don't understand a short story is his. It's not mine. So you're always looking for that middle ground where you can say things honestly, because what's the point of not? Um, but simultaneously, you're supportive of the process or the idea or the wavelength that the writer is on. So it's been it's been interesting, but we do do it 
pretty easily and pretty well. The hardest part for me is when he gives me a story and he says, just read it quickly. Don't make any notes on it. Don't do anything. I just want the overall sense that you have of the whole thing. And I see an error. Read it like you haven't read like, the first five drafts. And it's like, I don't want to have to go back through it again and go, where was that again? Where was that? So I, I do a lot of circles on things without describing it. But I guess a lot of people do that um, anyway. Uh, so that's the only thing. If he catches me using a pencil. <laughs> Like a, a writer's Rorschach test yes, or something right. like that? That's I think right. that's a good description. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, He wants the overall impact first, and then the rest of it, details to follow. But No, it's been fun. We've done actually a fair number of, of, of movie projects together, and I, and usually I'm there even if he's working on episo in episodic television. I myself have not set foot into a writer's room for television. That's true. I haven't. I mean, I've done, we've done television movies, but that's it. She, when I met her... She was making 60-second commercials for television that cost 10 times what it cost me to make the first. 30 seconds. She was making, this was 19... 83, 4, 5, 6. She was making commercials, <laughs> one-minute commercials for a million dollars and a million and a half dollars. No, way more than that. Sorry. That's bad enough, okay? <laughs> I, would, I, would, <laughs> I, I landed in California at, after at doing low, 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 low budget At the time, an hour television Europe. show ran about five hundred and fifty or $600,000. But it was amazing for me. I needed to earn some money quickly, and they hired me, which I couldn't believe. Um, but it was an interesting experience. It was all special effects in the motion control computer days where you have to know how to sort of architecturally envision different things, and it's expensive. It was, I mean, an, op an optical, which you don't I'm even sure have anymore. I'm sure you guys don't remember these commercials. There was one of the first ones was Tiger in Your Tank. Was that yours? Yes. Well, Memorex. Tiger in Your Tank. Burger King. Was that real? Yeah. That was real. And I bid, wow. the, I bid them all out in the, in the second company, really? my second incarnation. Shell oil. I don't know. Major. They were blue chip ones. You know, car commercials, hair commercials, beer commercials. But spending more money but than I'd spend on, a, on the fun half, part on of doing that. More than the the fun part of doing that is there are a lot of people, especially in production, who go into that during their in between periods when they're on other major, larger projects. So Vilmos Sigmund was there, the cinematographer, good friend. Jimmy Crabe, who did Karate Kid and is no longer with us, and a whole bunch of different people who, you know, this was an easy thing to do in the interstitial periods of time. So it was, it was, you met great, wonderful people who were energetic, and, you know, a week later they were gone. <laughs> Pretty much for the time being. Yeah. yeah it's it's like a fast-paced atmosphere. Very, very. And of course, you had the demanding clients who wanted to, you know, things very specially this way. Actually, you know what my biggest claim to fame is? When I first, first project I did, first, first, first thing when I landed on the West Coast after being away, way away, I don't, I don't come from here, um, was the Broadway video logo at the end of Saturday Night Live. That's hers. Now, I didn't design it. I didn't design it, but Lorne Michaels had very specific ideas about what the color range should be for that. And since I'd come from independent production stuff, the color range was what it was when you shot it in my world, yeah. But I must have done it 10, 12 times, go into the, to go in to do color correction and video to get that exactly the color scheme that he wanted. And once you've done that, you know how variable film, print, all these different media are. It's a, it's a craft unto itself. It was amazing. Anyway, that's my little thing. Every time that goes zinging by the... the I mean, that's like burned into my 
memory. I, I can picture it like clearly as day. I could probably draw it for you right now. It's like I helped color correct it. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. I claim to fame. You, you never did it. No, no, that was, I mean, literally, they handed that over to me as a project that I should just take care of. And Here, there the I Saturday was. No, it was the production company that <coughs> gave it to me to do. Yeah, and I would return it, and he would return it, and you know, back, back, back and forth, back and forth. But I'm glad. I mean, it's really fun to see it. I still, yeah. Could you maybe uh, tell us both how you got into the industry? Like, how did you even get started doing kind of the commercials, and then what did that lead to, and then how did you start? Sure. Um, I, I, I got into it because I was a, I was a journalist. I loved to write, and I loved to take photographs. I used to be in Vermont responsible for a page, a full page, six days a week for a very measly salary. But I loved doing it, and then I thought to myself in the woods of Vermont, why don't I just integrate the media, <laughs> the motion, the pictures with my words, yeah? So I went off to Europe with somebody who was an independent filmmaker, and I spent four years over there making movies for like $5,000 for features, right? There was a whole group of people that did it, Rick Schmidt and so on, who did what? How to make, make, how to make a movie used for used car prices, oh. movies for $3,000 that were features and so on. Anyway, so that was four years of it. And after that, I realized I was never going to be able to succeed in Europe, really, because I didn't write perfectly in any of the foreign languages, and I had to come back to the States, and writing was a big part of what I wanted to do. So I wended my way back here and immediately had to make money. I went in for an interview. A friend of mine had a job as a, some kind of a production person on, at this at this studio, and um, I, they showed me the reel, and I hadn't seen an American commercial. They're real. I hadn't seen an American commercial in over four years, and was never much of a TV person anyway in Vermont or whatever. But um, but there it was, this fantastic reel of stuff in terms of what people were looking for in those days. And the whole time I was looking at it, I was cracking up laughing because I thought it was insane. <laughs> I mean, seriously. But they gave me the job anyway. <laughs> and that was my beginning. And I didn't want to be there. That wasn't exactly what I was looking for. But I had the visual architectural sense to handle it. And I'd done opticals, optical blends um, in the independent movie business on the side of a, of a picnic table or something like that. In the, in the nighttime. I mean, it's not like I didn't learn to do stuff the hard way. Anyway, that's it. That was the beginning of the saga. And from there, it branches out with just about as many detours and turns. <laughs> you were much more. Oh, good God. We're talking centuries ago. I do know. I got hold of a Filmo 70, Bell & Howe Filmo 70D camera, which is 16 mil camera, but this big made of steel. And I was a graduate student at UBC, and there was a bank on campus, and there were actors around, and I said, I have a camera, let's make a movie. I went to the bank, and I asked the bank manager, it was called, what if you, what if you throw a war and nobody shows up? I went to the bank manager and asked him if he could shoot in the bank, and he said, sure, sure. And I came in with my tripod, and I put this mother camera on the tripod and getting people ready and the camera falls off and cracks a giant marble slab on the floor. <laughs> Nothing happened to the camera. <laughs> Put the camera back on the tripod and we kept shooting. So then I go home and I'm editing. And in those days you have these reels and a little tiny thing and a scraper for the negatives and stuff. 
And I go home and I edit this film. The guy knocks on my door and he says, Hi, I'm from the network and we're doing a show on brilliant young filmmakers. Could, we, could I see your movie? So I take my movie down to the station and we go into the screening room and they screen it. And the very first cut, the very first splice breaks. So the negative cutter comes in, she's all fixed that, she cleans it up and puts it back in. They start it again, and the second splice breaks. The negative cutter says, oh, okay, wait a minute. She takes the whole thing, you know, 10, 12 minute movie or something, a couple hundred cuts, and she goes off to her room and she cuts all and fixes every single splice. And then they come in and play the movie, it was a miracle. <laughs> and then they put it on TV. And I thought, what? And they paid me. I don't know. Tens or tens of dollars, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and then it went on TV, and I thought, what, a, what an interesting gig. <laughs> Just do what you want, and they give you money. And it didn't work out quite well. Um, and then, uh, so after that, I was still a graduate student, and I started to make um, a movie called The Plastic Mile, which won some festival, film festival prizes at Berlin and uh, Edinburgh. It was a movie we made for about three, four, five thousand dollars. It started out with nothing, um, and it got banned at the Vancouver Film Festival. It got banned because there's a rape scene, at, sort of you know, a rape scene at the end of the movie. And uh, it was being shown in Canada, it was a Canadian film, and the censor said, we cannot have Canadian tits, <laughs> whatever it was they were objecting to in the scene, and they kicked the movie and there was a big riot in the city actually people stormed around and it was great sorry about that <laughs> uh, and, and people stormed around ah. and um, they replaced it with a movie by Dujan Makoviev called I don't remember what it was called but it opens with a shot you know, in a hospital with a guy coming down the hallway with a giant erection but it wasn't Canadian, so it was okay. <laughs> and that film opened the festival instead of my film. So we then got money and we did another version. And then I made a movie with Alan Arkin. Yeah. Well, Proper Channels. Proper channels. Uh, I'm not good on names, sorry. Called Proper Channels. That was the first big expensive movie I made. And what was remarkable with that movie is the very first scene we had was in the Toronto International Airport. And we shut down the airport, some section of the airport. And we had people, we were doing a shot, people coming off a plane, so two, three hundred extras. In the middle of them is Alan Arkham, one of the passengers. They comes down this walkway and they come down an escalator. He had so much charisma. We start the shot and people come and every eye in the place goes to Alan Arkham. And you just watch and it just, it was an extraordinary, what charisma means in a movie star. It was just magical. But you picked him out of 300 people and you, you just, it was amazing. So that's my first introduction to Hollywood started. That's amazing. And that, that's a great story about the, the splicing and also just really lucky. <laughs> Unbelievably lucky. Two guys were responsible for that from the CBC, Gene Lawrence and Stan Fox. And they used to get a bunch of us young filmmakers, and they used to sneak out short ends. So you got to know what short ends are, you? No. Okay, so in film, the cans used to come in like 100 foot lengths or 400 foot lengths, and then when you got to, there were 50 feet left, and you knew it wasn't going to cover your shot, you were done. So the negative cutter, when they were cutting it, could take off that 
unused piece of film, splice it to another piece of unused film, and you end up with this new roll of film. So they would do that for us. They would splice all these unused pieces of film together and give them to the filmmakers in no time. It was great. It was such a different medium. I mean, in it a way, a it was. World. Yeah. Such yeah. a different world. No, no. World. So I, the, my skills from the special effects day are, days are useless now. I mean, it's just. I'm just sure we financed Plastic Mile by getting Canada Council grants. There were three writers and two actors and somebody else on the show. We all applied to Canada Council. They said, oh, I'm going to work on this movie. I need whatever it was, $300 or something. And everybody got a grant, and that money went into a pot, and we made the movie. And it was, a, I mean, it was great. It was like those movies right here. Everybody lived in the same house and shot in the same location. And, and it's something that you can do when you're 25 years old because you don't have a lot of kids and mortgages and stuff like that. And, I, and when I teach at the university, I tell the kids, you know, they pay $50,000 a year to go to school. And I say, there's, you know, there's six, eight of you in the class. Put your money together. <laughs> go make a movie. But they, they won't. The, the industry has become much more um, corporatized, and people think of it in terms of ladders. You know, if you go to if you go to film school, then the next step is you'll intern somewhere, and then you'll get to be an assistant somewhere, and then you'll get to be a writer, and then you'll get your Oscar. Most of them have their Oscar speeches already written. But, but what they should really do is is go make movies. Just do it. I agree. Like I went to school as an illustrator, and I'm still paying off my college debt. And I was like, I should have just made friends with an illustrator and drawn for those four years. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's nuts. Something that kids get out of, out of coming to university programs, but there must be a hundred thousand kids every year graduating from some kind of film program competing for a very limited number of jobs against professionals, against people like me who have histories and credits and trust from people. It's almost impossible. I don't know how young kids today get started. Is there any particular TV writing you like today? For both of you, yeah. Like anything that sticks out or you find notable? Yeah, I think the best written TV show of all time is The Wire. Absolutely. Uh, it's good. Uh, and we came to the wire like for years. People have been telling us watch it. Oh, we're busy. And we, we started watching in the fifth year. It was great. And it was okay, so we have to go back now. We go back to the first year, and we realized that everything that happened in the fifth year was right there in the first year. And we go, wow, that's real writing. That's just that was fantastic. so. Yeah, I think the wire head, head and shoulders above everything else. Yeah. We, no, no, we agree about that. I mean, that's something that we have in common. Was to, it was it was really a pleasure. I mean, there are other things that I that I've enjoyed or liked, but but I just thought that was a phenomenal accomplishment. What do you think is a Hmm? What shows do you like? I just said that. The well, Wire was really that. a favorite for me. Oh, aside from that? Well, like everyone, I pretty much like The Sopranos in certain ways. Yeah. It, was, it, was a, it was a great series. I drank series. Sopranos up there. Yeah. The difference is The Sopranos didn't have as tight a, an arc as Actually, I liked episodes. I like episodes. Oh, like, episodes is over now. But I thought that it was extremely clever. And I liked the fact that they were doing it in, in England. And they were away from their usual sort of terrain, and they actually made so much out of out of out of a small project, mm. half-hour series. Um, and in in some ways, it was more honest than a lot of the other movies I've seen about Hollywood. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, that was good. Um, I I tend to lean towards foreign movies and pictures when it comes to movies. And we we're we're lucky to have a lot of movie theaters here that show them. And now there's Canopy. 
Canopy.com, which I'm assuming you guys are into. Oh, no? we need oh. to know about this. Yeah, I, I, I can't pitch it so successfully because I haven't actually managed to do the last step of setting it up. But here's what it is. It's the Criterion Collection of Movies. And independent, foreign, um, all kinds of things, 30,000 of them. And the institutions like schools, um, universities, some of them, and you have to look on their website, which is K-A-N-O-P-Y.com. And I'm not advertising them because there's, they're a nonprofit. But anyway, the the, um, the advantage is, is you can see all of the things that they have on their on their site. They they pay for it. The institutions and the libraries pay for this it. Free, it's free to you. What she's trying to tell you Live is this streaming. is free screening of movies. Thirty thousand movies for free if you have a New York Library card. Wow. I mean, really. So it's canopy with a K. It's really yeah. worth yeah. checking. Yeah. No, it's a great. It's we'll a great have to check tip. that out. Yeah. Courtesy of the New York Times. Thank you. <laughs> So are there any, I mean, you mentioned your new book of short stories. Are there any other projects you want to you wanna shout out to our listeners? I have a new novel coming out, should be coming out in the spring, called Agua. It's a, a romantic, it's a love story and a political thriller. It's about the collision of water and politics. Uh, yeah, I, I like that book a lot. And we have a project that was Alicia's original script called One-Armed Joe and the Minnesota Massacre which I love for the title alone. Uh, so we're just doing a rerun on that now, and we're in development on a, a limited series, half-hour limited series Netflix thing with, a, I, with an actress, with an actress, and uh, I think it's going to die because of Harvey Weinstein. It's a very, it's a very sexual, um, not on Harvey's side of the thing, but still because all this stuff is going on, it makes it very hard to sort of bring the subject up at all. Before we uh, close out, maybe uh, could you tell us, maybe uh, since we're at a Highlander convention, your just favorite Highlander memory, or least favorite if there's more of them? <laughs> no, no, there weren't. You know, my favorite memory of Highlander is actually going in for meetings with David yeah. and getting to talk. And it didn't so much matter what the story was or what the theme was; it would evolve into uh, noble conversation. And uh, and that was the great thing about Highlander is that you knew we had one show, we went in to pitch one show and it was sort of a science fantasy show, but after we got through two sentences we were sitting there laughing and so were the producers because we couldn't take it seriously. But Highlander you could take seriously. I mean there was an underpinning of serious ethical concern. And that was uh, that made it always fun to be around. Definitely what we love about the show the most and kind of why we keep coming back to it is those moral questions that the show asks so frequently. Yeah. At the very base, that was the question was right and wrong. There's good and evil, and where do you stand, and how do you deal with it? And, uh, which is why I thought, I thought they did a terrific job with the play that they did, that Catherine and Paul did last night, projecting them into this new generation of watchers. I thought that was great and scary. On a personal note, you, you wrote The Fighter, right? Yes. Yes. That's like one of my favorite episodes. Oh, we really? always talk about it. I'm like, I love the, I love the writing in it because I'm yeah. like, it's snappy, it's funny. Like, it hits like a lot of a lot of points for me. And I think it's, it's Oh, great. that's great. I, that was the first one I ever did for you. Yeah, it's good. It was fun. We had a big debate on whether the, the character, the, the boxing manager, whether he deserved the fate he uh, had. Uh, he, he got killed by, by Duncan. <laughs> Since since these moral questions were at the core of a lot of these episodes, was that ever hard for you as a writer? Like, did 
is is that your moral choice at the end, or did you think it would be the characters, or you know what I mean? Like I feel like that's got to be a hard process to work moral through. Moral choice is at the core of my being, so it's always for me that question. And then the real world question is how much am I willing to compromise in order to serve the story or to do my job? Rarely did I have to. Rarely did I come in conflict with real. Convictions. I may have come in conflict with ways David wanted to express something. Or, or. David and I also took a Talmud class together. Oh, cool! So, so we got to, into some deep stuff and that. So we had disagreements and that stuff. But it was always you were looking for what was the right way to go. What was the and, and when adversity showed up, how do you get around it? How do you deal with it? Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for talking with us today. No, no worries. I'm glad we could we could do it. Thanks for coming back. Well,